what we're talking about tonight is, uh, is that very idea, is this idea of, and this is the, the main takeaway. If you hear nothing else for the rest of the evening, I want you to hear this, is that you can know Jesus through the words of the Bible. You can know Jesus through the words of the Bible. You know what's interesting, though, is that words in and of themselves, they kind of reveal a little bit about who we are. For instance, if you talk with me for any length of time, you'll find that I'm a Bible nerd, and I enjoy talking about Bible-y things. Um, and you'll, what you discover through that, the words that I speak, is that I have a love for Scripture, right? Or if you talk with me for any length of time, you'll know that I probably talk about my wife and how wonderful she is. Um, and me sharing those things reveals who, something about me. It reveals uh, a little bit of who I am. And what's interesting is that in John chapter 17, which is where we're going to be tonight, um, if you don't have a Bible, there's these little bulletins that got printed out. You can just snag one, and the passage that we're going to be reading is in there. And if you do have a Bible, uh, John 17 is where we're going to be. But Jesus once said that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in John 17, uh, John was kind of listening in, kind of eavesdropping, if you will, on a prayer that is recorded, and it's a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's actually the longest prayer that we have from Jesus, recorded uh, by the Apostle John. And we're going to discover some really cool things about Jesus this week and next week. But tonight, there is, there's four things that we are going to learn from this prayer. The first is we are going to learn about the glory of Jesus. The next is we're going to learn about the work of Jesus. And then third, we're going to learn about the people of Jesus. And last, we're going to learn about the ministry of Jesus. So the glory, the work, the people, and the ministry. Let's, uh, we'll go ahead and read this passage. It's John 17, 1 through 12, and then we'll, we'll dive in here. And this is what God's word says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name. This is verse six. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from, is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and are so grateful uh, that you make yourself known. God, if you never spoke to us, uh, if you never reached down and rescued us through the person and work of Jesus, that would be right because we are sinners and you are a holy God. And yet in your great love and mercy, you reach down. You sent your son on a rescue mission to bring us back to you when we had turned away. Father, we pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, first point is this. What's revealed, or one of the things that is revealed in this passage, is the glory of Jesus. If you look at verse 1, Jesus says, he says, he's speaking to the Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then skip down to verse 5, and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus, he just finished the, the teaching portion of the farewell discourse. That was 13 through 16. And so now this last chapter is a prayer that's recorded. And so Jesus, he, he lifts up his eyes to the Father and he prays. And he says, God, he says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And so what's revealed in this request for glory is that Jesus' glory is the same glory as the Father. And we've seen this before throughout this, this section of Scripture. Jesus is saying that his glory and the Father's glory are the same. And the implication of that is that Jesus and the Father are one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. The doctrine of the Trinity is part of the reason why I chose this section of Scripture because I wanted you guys to be familiar with this idea of, of one God, three persons. And this is another, another uh, glimpse into the mystery of God, how two or how three can be one. But in this passage, it's specifically mentioning the Father and the Son but what's really interesting is, so what this passage reveals is that Jesus is God, right? And so the immediate application slash action that comes to my mind is, if Jesus is God, then you and I, we can't be neutral or indifferent towards Jesus. If Jesus is God, if he is Lord of all things, in fact, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of Jesus in one of his uh, letters that he wrote from prison, he says that God, after Jesus uh, rose from the dead, the Father has given him the name that is above every name in heaven and on earth, that every tongue would confess and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. And so the, the point is this, is that 
We cannot be indifferent towards Jesus Christ. Either we have to recognize his authority over our lives and submit to it, or not. But indecision is a decision. Indecision is a decision. If you are indifferent towards Jesus Christ, Jesus hates that. In fact, in Revelation, he says this to the church. He says, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you are neither, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And so what, what we are faced with right out the gate is that Jesus is God, and we have to respond to that. We either have to say, yes, Jesus, you are God, and I will live my life under your authority. I will give my life to you. I will be a Christian, right? Lily, as you said, giving all that you are to Jesus. I'll live my life like that, or I'm going to live life my own way and wind up destroyed in the end. And so my question for us is, as we're thinking about this idea that Jesus is God, I wonder if there is someone in this room that has not committed their life to Christ. I know that it's really easy as, like, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about my life right now. I grew up in the church, okay? I grew up going to church every Sunday and, uh, you know, involved in children's ministry and all that kind of stuff. And I can tell you with, with absolute certainty that I was not saved. I can tell you with absolute certainty I did not live as though Christ is king of my life. It wasn't until God got a hold of me at 21 years old and told me that he had a better plan for my life that I really submitted my life to Christ. And so this is what I want to ask you guys is, are you really submitted to Jesus? Have you really given your life to him? Or is there a portion of it that you are holding back? Because if Jesus is God, Jesus owns everything, including you. So this is what we're faced with, faced with the reality that Jesus is God. But then the next thing, right after that, if you look at verse 4, he says this. It's Jesus speaking to the Father. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so what's interesting is if you look in verses 2 and 4, you see kind of the, uh, well, 2 kind of gives you the end result, and 4 gives you the cause of it. The end result is this, eternal life to those whom the Father has given to the Son, okay? And then he, Jesus goes on there, and he describes what eternal life is, did you, did you guys catch that in verse three? He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I think a lot of times eternal life is this kind of, I don't know, this vague uh, concept that, you know, we're, we kind of think that we're gonna be up in the clouds and we'll, there'll be little naked baby angels floating around up there. And, <laughs> and this is not what eternal life is. Eternal life is continually deepening in our knowledge of the triune God. Another way that the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, he says, let me look it up for you guys. It's Ephesians 2, 7. And this is what the Apostle Paul, how he describes 
the glory that is to come. And he says that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So eternal life is a never-ending, deepening enjoyment of God. You will not be bored in heaven. You will be enthralled with the beauty of Jesus Christ. You will be excited about getting to know God deeper and deeper. I know for me that like when I was growing up, like I had this idea of heaven that it was, you know, you're just going to sit there and sing the whole time. Like singing is great and Jesus is totally like worthy of us singing the whole time, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches new heavens and new earth in which God comes to dwell with us and we enjoy deeper and deeper communion with him and we get to know him better and better and we can never exhaust the mystery of God. We can never exhaust the beauty of God. We will be forever excited about who God is and forever learning more and more about him. So that's the, that's the end result. That's what Jesus has, has purchased for us as his people, right? But there's something that needed to happen before that, the purchasing, this idea of the work. Did you guys catch that in verse four where he says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do? So I'm gonna give you guys a, a theology term here. You can go ahead and, and take this home to your parents and really impress them. Uh, so this is the, not you, your dad's like, ah, I've heard that before. <laughs> um, but uh, so we're gonna talk about this idea, the work of Christ, the passive and the active obedience of Christ. The passive and the active. You guys ever heard that term before? You probably have, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you. <laughs> um, but so let me explain it. So the active obedience implies that there's action, right? Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, and he offered to the Father perfect obedience as a substitute. You guys have probably all had substitute teachers, right? They come in the place of the teacher, right? The teacher who's normally there. That's at the heart of the gospel. It's this idea of substitution. Jesus comes in and takes my place and your place, and he offers God perfect obedience in your place and in my place, okay? He offers to God the perfect obedience that we should offer to God, but don't. And not only that, the passive obedience, I used to think that this was the idea that Jesus like abstained from sin, right? Which is also true. But the passive obedience is Jesus taking, not only offering full obedience to the Father as our substitute, but also receiving the punishment for our sins. That's the passive obedience of Christ. In fact, John Owen uh, who is a theologian dude from the 1600s, um, he said this on his deathbed. He said that there is no greater comfort to know that Jesus actively obeyed and he passively obeyed. There's no greater comfort than to know that when you are about to stand before a holy God, that Jesus obeyed perfectly on your behalf and then he paid the penalty for your sins. That is the greatest comfort in all the world. It's like this. Imagine that you had broken like both your legs, like snap the femurs. You're sitting there in a chair, uh, you know, and you, you can't do anything, okay? Now imagine that you had a really good friend who came up to you and he's like, you know what? I know you can't work right now, 
So I'm going to dress like you, and I'm going to go to your job, and I'm going to work for you, and then I'm going to give you the money, okay? It's kind of like that, where Jesus, he takes on human flesh, okay? He offers perfect obedience to the Father. He works. He, he earns the blessings of God, so to speak, on our behalf, and then he gives them to us, and then Jesus gets our punishment. It's the people have called that the scandal of grace or the beauty of grace. Reliant K likes to say the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair because what is fair is that God should condemn me to hell for all eternity. What is fair is that God would condemn all of us to hell for eternity. But the beauty of grace is that Jesus obeyed in my place and died for my sins. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, He said that the sum total of all my theology is four words. You ready? Christ died for me. Summed up all of his theology in four words. And so this this is why it's relevant. You are going to feel at some point, you're going to feel like your relationship with God is contingent on your own living up to his standards. You're gonna feel like you have to be good enough because it just happens. Every single Christian kind of goes through this at some point. They feel like they have to be good enough. And what the gospel says is you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus came. You're not good enough, you'll never be good enough. But Jesus came. And the gospel also says that even though we are not good enough, God loves us beyond comprehension, beyond what we can even imagine. And so my question is this, is are you trusting in Jesus or your own ability to be righteous? Are you trusting in Jesus or are you trusting in your own ability to make you right with God? Because the reality is if you ask any uh, Joe Schmo on the street, if you ask them, uh, how do you know if you'll go to heaven? The automatic answer is always, well, I think I've done more good than bad. The problem is, is uh, you ever seen Jenga when you like pull out the bottom thing and the whole, the whole thing collapses? The problem is God's word says if you commit one sin, the whole thing collapses. You are absolutely ruined and undone by one sin. And I, we've all done a lot of those even today in thought and word and deed. And so the gospel is necessary Jesus is necessary. And so my encouragement to you guys would be to trust him. Rely fully on Christ and his work. So the next section is this. So we've talked about the glory of Jesus, the work of Jesus. Now we're going to talk about the people of Jesus. Now this one's really interesting. Um, Look with me at verse 2 again where he says, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now jump down to verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. How many of you guys like gifts? You guys like to get a gift, right? Um, When you, Ella, when you get a gift, do you feel like, like, that person really cares about you? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. What it, what's being said right here is that the father loves the son so much 
that he gave the son a gift. What's the gift? What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. You. And you. And you. And you and you and you. Right? So what, what this passage is saying is that our identity as Christians, as people who are in Christ, is that you are a precious, hand-picked gift by the Father to the Son. The reason that I bring that up is because we live in a culture and a society that tells us that we have to figure out our own identity. If we look deep within, we'll figure it out and, and it'll all be swell. But the reality is, is if you look within, you know what you'll see? Sin. You'll see wickedness. You'll see a heart that is turned away from God. And so we can't look to our hearts to tell us who we are or what we're supposed to be doing in life. There has to be some sort of truth that exists outside of my own thoughts and feelings and emotions in order for me to understand who I am and what my purpose is. And so what this passage is telling us is that your identity is that you are a hand-picked gift, hand-picked by the Father and given to the Son as a sign of the Father's love for the Son. And then the Son, as a sign of his love for you, he gave his life for you. Isn't that amazing? And the Spirit, as a sign of his love for you, said, here, come to Jesus. Meet the one who gave his life for you. Isn't this amazing? So when you are told by the world and by culture and by other people that you need to figure out who you are and and look into your heart, you can tell them, I don't need to look in there. My father has told me who I am and I'm a gift. That's who you are in Christ. The last point here, we're talking about the ministry of Jesus. So we've talked about the glory, talked about the work and the people. Now we're gonna talk about the ministry of Jesus. Look with me at verse nine, where he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now what's interesting is about John chapter 17 is what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And the reason that it's called the high priestly prayer is because it it imitates the high priestly prayer on the day of atonement in the Old Testament. So the high priest would pray for himself, then he'd pray for the other priests, then he'd pray for the people, okay? And so if you follow the flow of this this chapter, that's exactly what Jesus does. First five verses, you see his focus on, on himself. Then in six through 19, you see his focus on the disciples, the immediate, the apostles. And then in 20 through the rest of the chapter, you see his focus on, believe it or not, we're gonna talk about this next week, but Jesus was actually praying for you in that moment in the garden. Isn't that wild to think about, that Jesus was praying for you in that moment? And he still is. In fact, someone look at Hebrews chapter seven, verse 24 and 25. As soon as you get it, just go ahead and read it. Uh, chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost of those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession with them. Okay, intercession. Intercession is a big word. Someone explain that to me real quick. You guys are smart people. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, imagine, uh, Faith, imagine with me for a moment that you stole a vehicle, okay? Imagine you stole a car, you got arrested, and now you're in the courtroom, and you have a lawyer who's representing you. He speaks on your behalf, right? You don't have to worry about knowing all the legal, like technical jargon and all that kind of stuff, because this guy went to school and paid a whole lot of money so that he could speak on your behalf, right? So think about this idea of Jesus as our defender, as our advocate. That's what's being talked about. That's the ministry of Jesus. In fact, we talked about the the word helper a few weeks back. Do you guys remember us talking about that? It's okay if you don't. I'm going to explain it anyway. Um, this, This idea of helper, sometimes it gets translated as advocate, one who speaks on behalf of. And Jesus says that, of the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm gonna send you another advocate, another helper, meaning that Jesus is the OG advocate, the, the <laughs> helper, uh, numero uno, and then the Holy Spirit comes next, and he is the, the helper who literally indwells us as Christians. And so... As we think about this idea of Jesus and his intercession and the reality that we are sinners in desperate need of someone to represent us before a holy God, there's two reactions that you can have when someone tells you that that you're a sinner. The first is this, is that you don't care, either you don't care or you don't know how sinful you are and how much God hates your sin. Either you don't care or you don't know how sinful you are we are, and how much God hates our sin. The other reaction that you can have is you know how sinful you are, and you don't know what to do about it. Jesus is the answer to both of those things. If you know that you are sinful, cling to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus, because Jesus is a friend of sinners. In fact, it's interesting, the Pharisees, when they talked about Jesus, that was their big criticism of him. It's like, man, all the sinners like to hang out with this guy. If he was a real prophet, he wouldn't be hanging out with these people. But Jesus is like, I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. Now, Jesus isn't actually saying that they're truly righteous. What he's saying there is, I didn't come to call self-righteous people. I came to call people who know that they are in desperate need of grace, in desperate need of forgiveness, and that they need someone to rescue them from their sins. And that person is Jesus. So if you're the first person and and you maybe don't care, you don't care about your sin, I would just plead with you. Ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes. Because sin is not a joke. And if you're the second person, you need to know that Jesus is gentle and lowly. He loves sinners. Let's pray, and we're going to go into our groups now.
Father, we come before you and we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to be our advocate, the one who intercedes for us. We're so thankful that you sent Jesus to obey in our place and to experience the wrath of God against our sins. Father, as we enter into our groups, I pray that you uh, would grow us close together, Lord. I pray that you would make us good friends. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.